to have a space to worship you. And I pray as I preach the 23rd Psalm, these popular, famous words, Lord, that Holy Spirit, you would give life to these words that are already alive, but that you would come and move among us, Lord. Help us to trust and have confidence in the God who is our shepherd and our host. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As many of you do, I have a surgery scar. Had a big surgery, and now I have a scar in light of it. This happened when I was younger. But this scar has become so familiar to me that I don't really pay attention to it anymore. It never stopped me from playing sports growing up as a kid. I didn't really pay that much attention to it. And I don't really notice it that much unless someone else points it out to me. I have sort of forgotten about it and forgotten about the significance that this scar has played in shaping my story. And I think this sort of over-familiarity is what strikes us when we read famous Bible stories. We read stories about Jesus feeding the 5,000 or Jesus walking on water, and we say, yes, save that for VBS. Save that for children. This is Sunday. We want to hear about parenting and work and singleness and marriage. For some of us that have grown up in the church, we might read a familiar Bible story, and we might roll our eyes. We might not take it seriously. We, We have become so familiar with some passages that we might overlook the significance behind the words. Psalm 23 is one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible. Many of you have memorized it. Many of you love this psalm. It's one of your favorite psalms. But one suspicion that I have is that maybe... We have read it so much that we haven't stopped to pour over every line and see once again with fresh eyes what the psalm is trying to teach us. We're going to go through it verse by verse, and as we do, I I want this song or this psalm to once again encourage you and bless you. There are various kinds of psalms all throughout the psalms. Lament. Praise, worship, cursing, historical psalms. There's, there's all kinds of psalms. But this psalm, if we're going to label it or title it, Psalm 23, is a psalm of trust. A psalm of confidence in God. It is showing a confidence and trust in the Lord to get you through whatever you're currently going through doesn't mean things will get better overnight, but it does mean this psalmist has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and now he trusts him even when he's in the valley. Some of you have grown up in Bethesda, and you're privileged to have family after family that you know that are in this church, that are from this church. Others of you are new to the Christian faith, or maybe new to our church context, Whether you're new to the faith, or whether you've been walking with God for 50, 60 years, 
it can still be hard at times to trust the Lord for provision and care. We see God provide care and comfort and abundance one area of our life. But then a few weeks or a few months later go by and we forget all about it. This psalm is a reminder to place our trust and confidence in the Lord who is our shepherd and our host. It calls to mind the goodness of God. And because God is good, we should trust him. So this, this psalm shows us two images. First, the Lord cares for his people as a shepherd. and The Lord cares for his people as a host. The Lord is a shepherd and a host. Starting with verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right away, there's metaphorical language. There's all kinds of metaphors in this passage. And right away, we see God, the Lord, described as a shepherd. King David was a shepherd before he became a king. And he spent a lot of time around sheep. So this would have been a familiar metaphor both to him and to those in the ancient Near East where farming was a popular vocation. And agriculture was a big deal. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. You would never say someone is my unless there was an intimacy. A seminary professor used to call his wife, my Rebecca. You might refer to your child or as your mother or someone you love as my, enter their name. You don't do that with everyone. But where there's intimacy and closeness and nearness, we do that. Look, he calls, the Lord is my shepherd. Other places in the Bible, the Lord is referred to as king, deliverer, judge, the one who's coming back to execute all those who don't repent and believe in Jesus. But here it's tender and gentle. He's a shepherd. What do shepherds do? A shepherd feeds the sheep. God himself provides for his people. The shepherd makes sure that the sheep, their basic needs are kept. The shepherd protects sheep from wolves. The shepherd provides leadership and instruction and help for his sheep. And throughout the Bible, the shepherd-sheep metaphor is very common, that the people of God, those who have trusted in Christ, are the sheep, and God is our shepherd. And what David is saying is that the Lord is our shepherd. He's going to provide for needs. He's going to provide care. He's going to provide comfort. And he's going to be with you, just like a good shepherd will be with you. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is not just the God of Israel, but he's the God of each and every individual person who calls upon his name. We sometimes speak of Jesus as being my Lord and my Savior. That's very appropriate. While we need the church and we need one another, and we should not refer to God as in strictly individualistic terms, Nevertheless, every person has a personal relationship with Jesus who's trusted and believed in him. 
So, so look at the, the closeness, the nearness that he refers to the Lord as my shepherd. And then he says, I shall not want. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When he says that, he's not saying that God will give him all of his desires. Everyone has to live with unfulfilled desires or dreams. Things, suffering, trials, tribulations happen. What he's saying is that because the Lord is my shepherd, all of my needs will be provided for. I don't have to worry about provision because the Lord will take care of me. And as soon as an ancient Israelite would have heard this, right, the Bible is written for us, but not necessarily to us, right? It's for us, but first there was an original audience, and the original audience here are the Israelites, and their, their minds would have been drawn to the exodus, the escaping slavery and going into the promised land. Many, many years wandering and wavering, and what's going to happen, and how, how are we going to have food, and how are we going to cross the sea? How are we going to have provision in the desert? For those who obeyed God, God provided for them and blessed them and cared for them every step of the way, even when they were in the wilderness. Similarly, in your own life, as you look to the future, there might be worries and concerns. This passage teaches us, it's just like God has done always, is that God will provide for his people their needs. We live in a very prosperous nation. And so we, we tend to think our needs are really our greeds. So bigger TV is nice. A nice vacation is great. Vacation home is awesome. All of those things can be freely pursued in Christ. But for those of us who are very used to having sort of this prosperity and growing up in this wonderful nation, we might take for granted that a billion people live in poverty. For those of you who grew up in financial difficulty, or when you had low money and Christmas came and didn't have money for presents, or going from paycheck to paycheck, you know how thankful you are when provision happens. God doesn't promise to provide for our greeds, but He does promise to provide for our needs. And as a result of His provision, we should thank Him the God who, owe, who requires his people to thank him. And not only that, out of his provision, his abundant provision for us, we should seek to bless other people as well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. All my needs will be provided for. The Lord is a shepherd, but he's also a leader. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. If you drive around your neighborhood, you're probably going to see a lot of green grass. There was very little green grass in the ancient Near East. The, the climate was hot and it was dry and rocky and lots of hills. And being a shepherd was hard because you needed to lead your sheep to green pastures. Here, here what the psalmist is saying is like a good shepherd who will go miles and miles to find green pastures is the Lord who leads his people into places of rest and abundance and security. This is metaphorical language to show the refreshment, the spiritual refreshment that God desires to give those, 
to, to give to those who seek him. He says, verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's talking about spiritual renewal. If you're feeling burnt out or empty or running on E, part of this psalm is to encourage us to draw near to the God who wants to give spiritual renewal and spiritual strength. We live in a place where it's go, 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 do, 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 from one task to another, and it's very good to be productive. But one of the most productive things you can do for your soul is to seek the shepherd who desires to renew you, to make time for him, to allow him to bless you, to allow him to pour into your soul and give you spiritual nourishment through his word. He leads me in paths of righteousness. This means the right path of making the right decisions to obey God. And he does all of this, it says, for his name's sake. The reason why God blesses you if you're in Christ is, yes, he loves you. Yes, he's for you. He's committed to you. But he's also committed to himself. He says he does this for his name's sake. Because God said he would do this. So if he didn't do it, he would be a liar. If God says he's going to do something, he has to do it. And because God has already decreed and promised and ordained that for those who trust in him, he will provide for their needs, he will undoubtedly do it because it glorifies himself and it helps you. When you put your faith in Christ, you entered into this covenant with God. A covenant is something, as Tim Keller says, more intimate and loving than a mere contract more binding and accountable than a mere relationship. This is a covenant language of God just caring for his people. There's blessings for obedience and chastisement for disobedience. And because God is concerned about his name, his reputation, his glory, he says he's going to do it for his name's sake. So God gets the glory and you get the blessing. That's why you were created, to glorify God. Glorify means to magnify or show honor or worth to your creator. This is a wonderful partnership, an amazing covenant language to show that those who are in this covenant experience this blessedness. And those who are not, do not. This psalm introduces us to the goodness of God. We say that God is good. Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, defines goodness as this. God is the final standard of good, and all that God is and does is worthy of approval. It doesn't always seem like that. When there's tragedies or hardships or difficulty or health concerns, we might get to a place and say, God, are you really there? Are you really good? If you, if you are good, why did you send or allow all of these things to happen? And one of the things we see throughout the Bible is that God doesn't always give us the answers. Like Job, for example, who I will talk about, but at the end of the book of Job, Job still didn't get the specific 
answers to his questions. But we see that the path of those who do enter this covenant with God, that God's plan A for each and one of his children is godliness, is Christ-likeness. And we know that God loves his son, but he sent his one and only son to die on the cross in your place and for your sins. So, so we don't always know exactly why God sends or does this, that, or the other, but we know it's not because he doesn't love us. Of course he does. He gave up his one and only son, as Tim Keller reminds us. And we, we don't always get our specific answers to every question, but we know that to those who belong to God, he's helping us to become more like Christ, to grow in godliness. And he uses suffering and hardship and difficulty to draw you closer to him and to help you become more like Jesus. So God is good all the time. This, this has to be a bedrock foundational understanding of your walk with God, that God is both in control over all things that happens, that there's nobody who's more powerful and big than he is, and he makes no mistakes and no accidents, but he's also good. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be tamed. God is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases, and sometimes that means we have question marks, but if we have this confidence that God is working all things out for my good and helping me become more like Christ, even in my discomfort, we will be able to praise him, trusting his wisdom that God knows best. That God knows I need to grow in this area, so he's sending this person or he's sending this trial to show me my sin, to show me where I need to improve and grow. That these, all of these hardships have a purpose and the more we understand that God is good, the more we'll have confidence in him. And the more we'll be able to, like Psalm 106.1 say, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. The thing to hold on to during hard times of life is the goodness of God. To trust his character. To know that he has a purpose behind the pain. This is what the psalmist speaks of, that he himself didn't have a cushy, easy life. This is David. Psalm 23 is uh, trust and confidence in the Lord, but Psalm 22 is he's freaking out. There's lament. There's anguish. There's personal frustration. Psalm 23 is the direct result of Psalm 22. And so he talks about the valley and the difficulty, and we have this cushy, nice, touchy-feely sort of bumper sticker language. And then we get to verse 4 where he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He says, I'm going down in the dark valley. A valley is a low area, usually between a hill or a mountain. In David's day, being in a valley was deadly or dangerous. There were outlaws and floods and rivers and wild beasts. And he could have died easily. In fact, many people did. But he says, even though I'm walking in this valley, in our situation, it would be like, even though I have all these difficulties right now, I will fear no evil, he says. 
over and over in David's life, he had hardships. Notice he says, I will fear no evil. He doesn't say, I have not experienced any evil. He says, I'm not going to be afraid of hardships. Not that I'm not going to go through them. Nowhere does he say, oh, God is so good and comfortable and awesome and amazing. He protects me from all harm. Isn't this an amazing God? He never says that. He says that God is with him in the valley. Here's the central affirmation of the psalm. The, The few words here where he says, for you are with me. That is the key here of this psalm is understanding that in the valley, in the difficulty, God is with you, preserving you, helping you, strengthening you as you obey Him. Doesn't mean problems go away right away, but that He's with you in the valley. You can think about Job in the Old Testament. Job says of him that there's none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan's like, hey, you see that Job guy? He's like the godliest person on the earth. Can I go mess with him? And God's like, yeah, go for it. Like, what? This is the God we believe in in Christianity? Like, what? You're, gonna, you're, you're really going to allow that? And there's loss of property, loss of money, loss of his own family, much suffering. And I was listening to a sermon last night, and the pastor said that throughout the history of the world, Millions of Christians have read the book of Job and have been able to get through the valley with strength because of what Job went through. And Job didn't see this in his lifetime, and we don't always see why God is allowing what he does, but we trust that he's using it for our good. He does not promise to spare us from evil, but to be with you when evil things happen and use that for your good. We serve a shepherd God who uses a, says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A rod is for fending off wolves and beasts and so forth. A staff is for discipline. The rod is for the enemies. The staff is for us. Because we say things we shouldn't. We do things we shouldn't do. We, we sort of neglect Bible reading and prayer for weeks at a time. We might think church, oh, it's optional. We might drift away from God. And because God loves his sheep, just like a good parent will love their child and discipline their child, sometimes he uses the staff for personal discipline. It's a sign that you belong to him, not a sign that he doesn't love you. It's the opposite. It shows that he does love you. So, so, so there's a rod here for, for enemies, but there's a staff here for personal discipline. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He is with us in every single adversity. For, me, for many of us, it's, it's not that we fear provision of water and food. That, that might be your concern, but living in 21st century America, that, that might be less and less of a concern For some of you, it might be sort of you're on your gun lap or the last lap of your life where you look at "Ah, death or how are my children going to turn out or how are my 
grandchildren going to turn out? Will someone be, am I, I going to be in a nursing home? Am I going to die alone? How is this going to happen, Lord? I've, I've tasted and seen that you are good, but here I am now at the end. Are you going to preserve me? Are you going to bail on me now? The promise of the 23rd Psalm is, this is the faithful shepherd who never bails on his people that will provide and be there for you till the end. So the Lord, the Lord is a shepherd, but the Lord also is a host. It's, it speaks of him as this leader, as this provider, as the one who provides care and abundance. Now it actually gets deeper. He says, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. A shepherd is outside with the sheep. So we're outside the home. We're doing all this wonderful experiencing of God outside. But now, now we're inside. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. This, this shows the, a deeper intimacy this is more metaphorical language to show the security and honor that God gives to his people. God is a good host. A while back, I was getting breakfast with a pastor friend of mine in the St. Louis area and went over there, had this wonderful breakfast ready. Wife and kids seemed very happy to see me. He's a very smart guy, asked him a lot of good questions. He drove me home. I went home that day just feeling very refreshed and blessed by that. What a good host. Didn't require me to bring anything. Maybe I could have or should have. He went the extra mile to take me home and had provision ready. This is kind of the picture that we have of how God treats his people like a host, like a banquet. It says, you anoint my head with oil. This was done to honor guests at a banquet. You can think about your current job. If you have a, a yearly banquet and the boss brings you up and honors you in front of everyone, how encouraged you would feel by that. Says he, he does this in the presence of my enemies. That although I have experienced hardship, my, my cup overflows, my joy is overflowing because of the way that God is honoring me and blessing me. And though I do have frenemies and enemies and I do have hardships, God is going to honor me right in front of them. And then he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. House of the Lord forever. Some take that to be heaven. Others take that to be dwelling in the temple with the people of God. But either way, he speaks of experiencing the goodness of and mercy of God in every situation. The psalmist says he does this in front of my enemies. Sometimes we think of enemies, and rightly we think of people who don't like us, or specifically in biblical context, it would be people who want to persecute you for your faith. So, oh, you're a Christian. We're going we're gonna to do X, Y, and Z in society to marginalize the Christians. That is certainly having enemies. But sometimes our enemies can be internal enemies. Shame. Guilt. Anger. Anxiety, depression. 
all of that is real and Christians experience it too because we live in a fallen world a broken world just because you have Jesus doesn't mean you're going to be spared from even those things Christians go through that kind of stuff as well I was reading one writer he was speaking about a time in his life where Christmas was coming up and he didn't have money for presents for his wife and kids and he was feeling a lot of shame and guilt for this. I'm, I'm the man. I'm the guy in this household. I'm supposed to provide. And he was staying faithful to God, obeying God, pursuing God, crying out to God, appropriately lamenting to God. Couldn't just change jobs right away. It's not always easy to do that right away. And he kept pursuing God about this, these feelings that he was having, these enemies, so to speak. And to this day, he doesn't know who did it, but one afternoon he found a package of Christmas presents on his door. And he found money in the mailbox. Unbelievably blessed by that. And that, that took away the anxiety for Christmas. And God blessed them with a wonderful Christmas. The, the point of sharing that is that the reason why they got money in the mail and Christmas presents is because someone gave that to them. And one of the ways we experience the goodness of God, the love of God, the abundance of God, is through one another, through people. One pastor says, people don't learn that God loves them by being told. They learn that God loves them by being shown. So this isn't this is, in some sense, passively receiving the blessing of God through his word. But this is also actively seeking and saying, are there any specific needs in my context now that I can meet? How can I bless other people and show them that the Lord is their shepherd? When God wants to express and show his generosity, he often uses people. Be on the lookout of ways you can bless people. A simple text message of encouragement is a massive blessing to people. One counselor who recently passed away, he said this, you will pass through the valley of the shadow of death filled with evils, but you will say that goodness and mercy followed you all the days of your life. This is only possible because of the great shepherd, the great host, Jesus. Psalm 23 points us to Christ. David used to risk his life for the sheep, but Jesus gave his life for the sheep. David and Moses are referred to as shepherds, but Jesus is the great shepherd and the ultimate shepherd. Goodness and mercy will follow you because he received wrath and rejection on the cross. This psalm points us to Jesus who says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus lived the perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. He doesn't promise to spare you from all trouble, but he does promise to be with you in your trouble until he takes you home. Let's pray.
Jesus, you hung high on the cross so that you could be down low with us in the valley. You provide for us in so many ways. Help us, God, to seek to provide for other people through the abundance that you have given us. Through text messages, emails, presents, chocolates, clothes, a ride. All these little things, God, that we, we say, is God even using me? Is God even, am I doing anything good? No, no, no. All these little things, God, you, you care about and you use your people to bless. We don't need to necessarily preach sermons and write books and travel the world. We, we can just do little acts of expressing love right here, right now. Please open our eyes to the needs around us and please help us to seek you and experience this spiritual renewal that you want to grant all of your people. Oh God, please come among us and work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.